On today's podcast, you're going to hear an older webinar that I did early in 2019 when I was still working the day job. So you'll hear me talk some of my reasoning back there for still doing it, which um, kind of went out the window when I finally got sick of the day job and left. And you can also hear about some of my ideals changing about visiting properties before I go into deals. Now I make it an absolute part of my process where I do go and check out the property and walk it. Which wasn't possible when I had that day job to... Other announcements, make sure you guys check out simplepassivecashflow.com slash hui3, which is our first multi-day mastermind in Hawaii. We'll be holding it on the island of Oahu on President's Day weekend, February 14th to 17th, 2020. And what to expect? Some structured networking and some masterminding with other Hui investors and other affluent investors. The time and environment to build the real relationships that you can take forward forever. And for you A students out there, we'll even have a full day of targeted education and masterminding. We'll be doing some luau's, happy hours, dinners, and a guided hike, and maybe even more. Sign up now and get a free one-on-one strategy session in person so you can kick the year off right. Space is extremely limited in order to create an intimate and exclusive environment. The price will drastically increase as time goes on. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash hui and the number three before it fills up. Combine business and pleasure and a tax write-off and see you in Hawaii. Yeah, this next hour, if you guys are kind of looking for a big overview, I'm going to talk about who I am and my transition from going from single families to multifamily investing. I kind of compiled 10 random tips that I do as a limited partner to vet deals. And I also looked into the crystal ball and tell you what I'm going to be doing in 2019 and 2020. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He went and tried to rent them out, and then he became one real investor man. A little bit background on myself. I grew up in Hawaii, a beautiful place. I don't really get up to the beach very much. Uh, most times I'm sitting right here in my office working on a deal or something. But here's why I like Hawaii. I mean, this, this kind of picture in the middle kind of encapsulates Hawaii. It's, it's very community-based. You know everybody. Everybody knows you. I, I like it. I lived in Seattle for the past 14 years up until last year. That's why I like Hawaii. Um, everybody drives Corollas. If you're rich, you drive a Camry. It's, it's, it's a community of, of um, people. And, you know, what I didn't like about living in Seattle was it just always seemed like a big rat race. And as I got more and more cash flow, tried to find things that made me more happier and more content. So I've um, been here since about 18 months now. Um, I grew up here. My professional resume, I, I have a bachelor's in science and in industrial engineering and civil engineering master's uh, in construction management, also from the University of Washington. I'm a professionally licensed engineer. Um, my first job out of college, I graduated in 2007. If you guys are doing the math at home, I'm about 33 years old. Supervised a 100% traveling union capital maintenance crew for uh, Mr. Buffett's railroad. Supervised over $50 million of work there. 2013, 2015, I changed roles in that company and I became more of a project engineer. We're a design permit and constructed over $185 million of construction there. Um, and that's me in like the picture there. I'm on the left. Those are some of my guys. Um, great times. Um, I don't miss that work at all. You know, it's 24 7, uh, nonstop. Uh, 2015, 17, I became a city engineer. I learned more about sidewalk streets 
signals, drainage, erosion projects, $2 million worth of total projects there. And this is where I started to go from private to uh, the nonprofit sector and uh, start to get a little bit more of my life back. And today I'm a, I used to be an airfield engineer. I uh, did this project at Honolulu Airport. It was a taxiway alpha project. And um, that's just me at work. Uh, I have a little YouTube video at, on my YouTube site just screwing around. Just a little bit more personal stuff about myself. If you guys want to read my full quirky bio, it's simplepassivecashflow.com slash about me. I'm a self-proclaimed cheapo. These are all kinds of the stuff that I would do, ridiculous stuff. Uh, when I was like two, in my 20s from 2007 to I actually kind of got more conscious of this stuff and I try to stop doing doing these kinds of things but these are the kind of things I would do to save money for down payments on properties one tip I have for you guys that picture on the bottom right is from Mod Pizza so if you've ever been to Mod Pizza you know they have pizzas there but you may or may not know they have salads there and you can just load it up for like 12 bucks and get like a salad that'll last you for days Here's my real estate resume today. I have 15 apartment buildings, two manufactured homes or mobile home parks, an assisted living facility, 2,100 total units, $255 million of real estate, 10 U.S. markets. But I'll kind of go over, you know, my ascent into um, those 2,100 units because I think people re- don't realize how long and slow this is to get started. Um, you know, I began 2007 working. It took me a couple of years to save up my first down payment for my first A-class rental in Seattle, Washington. If you're familiar with Seattle, it's, um, I bought it in Maple Leaf, which is a very great suburb of uh, northern Seattle. I bought it for $350. It rented for $2,200 a month. And like I said, you know, I was working sort of construction. So what I would do is I would leave home on like Sunday morning, get to work Sunday evening for work, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, if I was lucky, I would be able to get home on a Friday, but most times it'd be on Saturday. I, I was like living in this home, a bachelor by myself. And I just realized like, you know, it just didn't make any sense. So I just started to rent it out, cut up an old property management company. And that's how I became an accidental landlord. And to me, you know, I was making 2200 a month with rents. The mortgage was like 1600 So to me, it just seemed like I was making like 600 bucks a month of extra beer money. So that was when like the wheel started to really turn with me. And I, I started to realize that was my ticket out of the big uh, rat race. Bought a couple more units in Seattle. And then 2012 happened. You guys probably can put yourselves in that mind frame, especially if you're in a primary market. You know, a lot of the properties just didn't cash flow anymore. And I realized the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary markets that I just wasn't going to be able to buy anything in cash flow. And this is when I started to, you know, it's a pivot point. And, you know, I think pivot points are very important in uh, investing careers and life where you kind of realize something may or may not be working for you, it may have worked in the past. And you pivot to towards something else. So I tried a, a one of those turnkey properties in Birmingham, and it worked. <laughs> so what does anybody do but like just sell all their Seattle stuff? And that's what I did. I ten thirty one exchange into eleven single family properties in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, and I bought this little other one in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. 
and was a little random. And then I started to dabble into international farmland investing. Uh, you guys can ask me later about that, about the coffee, coffee parcels. Um, but at that point, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do after that. You know, I had this thought in my mind that I was going to get 10 single family homes to get fannied out. You know, I started investing a lot of money in my ed- own education, different masterminds, traveling to different conferences, and just spending money on networking. Because I started to realize that going to the local RIA was just, it wasn't the crowd that I was looking for. It, it was just a bunch of flippers and wholesalers. And I don't know if you guys realize, but it seems to me that the RIA is filled with, you know, broke people. You know, it wasn't filled with the people I was trying to look for, which were the doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, kind of like myself, to kind of copy and follow what they were up to. I realized that I need to come to events like this, you know, where you get around like-minded people. That way you can kind of like see what other people are doing and build relationships more importantly. This diagram here kind of shows what I went through the last, from 2007 to now. Uh, This is called a Senki diagram. Um, Engineers are kind of known for flow, flow charts and stuff like that. Well, here's a new one for your Senki diagram. So what what it is, is on the left side, what you're showing is, how much money I was making at my job. And I believe my starting salary way back in 2007 was like 60 grand, and, uh, which was a lot back then. And especially through 2008, 9, 10, when there was a recession and I was just lucky to have a job. But, you know, on the right side, you kind of go and you, you show you, these are expenses. And at the bottom of the page, on the savings there, that was pretty much what I was saving. And remember, I was um, the housing $2,000 a month. After a while, I started to uh, live nowhere. You know, that was kind of my cheapo tendencies. I I would just stay in company lodging and hotels all the time as I became a a landlord. Here's what I would suggest, Um, you know, go on Google Senki diagram, try and make one of these things on your own. And, And it helps communicate to your family, kind of what's happening here. You you can put multiple um, incomes, you can put multiple different passive streams of income on here, and you can show how your your expenses are coming. So that's me, year one, this is how I started. You know, I bought that first rental here, it brings an extra $300 of cash flow, and it just bumps my savings up. In year two, bought another rental, more savings. I'm super excited about a new program I'm rolling out that's going to reinvent scammy real estate education programs. So excited, like Marine Kondo cleaning stuff up excited. Announcing my new mastermind program which consists of a closed member site with 27 packed weeks of content, plus bi-weekly group video conference calls to ask whatever. Half of the calls will be centered around granular investing tactics and the other half will be holistic wealth building strategies that I have learned from the wealthy. That's 25 plus hours of group coaching and masterminding. And a secret Facebook group too. I know what you're thinking. Not another flippin' Facebook group. Well, this one's gonna be different. More intimate, exclusive, and no cheapskates or shady vendors in it. I've been coaching individual clients over the past couple years and I figured out what you guys need and a way to provide it in a cost-effective way. Learn more, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey and join before the first cohort fills up and the introductory pricing goes away.
And at this point in year two, just a couple of months, this is where I started to read, I actually read Rich Dad, Poor Dad about a couple of years into this process. And, you know, then I started to re- listen to all the podcasts back then, 2009, 10. And I just realized I was just another hamster, but a, you know, bigger hamster in the wheel. Because, you know, yeah, I was making a pretty good salary back then. It just, it just didn't seem like it was enough. I think a lot of high-paid professionals kind of feel like this. Even though you may be making $200,000, $300,000, you have to keep working. If not, it all stops. So year three, you buy another rental, your savings goes up. Four, same thing. After a while, you know, it starts to kind of snowball on you because, you know, those rental properties add up and you can possibly buy one a year or even more than that. So at this point, five years into the game, I kind of learned this, uh, this mantra. I kind of stepped out of that construction management newbie role, which I, I feel like it's a very important stage for a lot of people working you know, for five, 10 years. You got to just pay your dues and do those, those jobs. But essentially, I kind of grew up to one, where I'm at today. And here's my big uh, mantra that I talk, tell a lot of high-paid professionals and it goes something like this. So if you're able to save more than $30,000 a year or have substantial liquidity, and when I mean save, I mean that's income minus expenses and includes your passive investments. You know, most people, they, they live you know, paycheck to paycheck, even though they very well make like $150,000. It's kind of amazing. I talked to some people, they make like two fifty. dollars and they're only able to save like five grand a year. And then I'm like, what the heck, man? Right? Like, where is this money going? And then they're like, oh, we got kids. I'm like, man, what do these kids eat? It's a little ridiculous in my opinion. That's what I always ask. It's like, how much, at the end of the day, I don't care how much you make. It's how much you save is the big indicator here. If you're able to save more than $30,000 a year, substantial liquidity currently, which is over $200,000 in the bank or in the HELOC, being a landlord and especially flipping is just not scalable. That, that stuff is merely a form of capital creation, in my opinion. Many of us doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants are better off at our day jobs with our salaries. And I'm sorry to say that to you folks. I think a lot of people that have those jobs think that you know, they're going to go quit it one day and become a real estate investor. And I'm here to say that Unfortunately, your highest and best use may be right back at your day job that you may or may not like. There, we're able to generate capital and to put into passive investing with tax benefits that come along with it that are sort of the the hidden intangibles and something I'm kind of learning more and more about as I move along. If you're already saving at that level, you, you are likely to be financially free in four to seven years. So beginning with the end in mind, and I would say take the more passive approach. And then if you're doing single family homes, do the math. With $300 per property at cash flow, you're going to need like 20 or 40 of these things to replace your income. Um, I had 10 of these things or 11 of these things, and I had th- thought I had good systems in place. But with 10 or 11, I had one or two evictions a year and three or four big things that happened. So if you imagine if you had 30, just three X those numbers, and you guys can read that full article there, simplepassivecashflow.com backslash syndication for full article. But as we move along, you know, that's with that in mindset, that was where I kind of took a, a turn, a pivot in my journey. Um, you know, started to pick up syndication deals 
And as you can see, it's a little bit more scalable. And uh, 2016 was that big pivot point for me when I started to look into multifamily. I stopped buying single family homes. And this is a, a chart that I made. I think I'll, um, we've heard like the crossover point. I kind of made this crossover point 2.0 where I overlaid the green line, which is, you know, this is your job. Like as you kind of take on more and more roles in your organization, you're constantly increasing expectations at work, keep going up and up and up. But five, six, eight years into the investing game, I think what you'll find, what happened to me is my motivation at work decreased greatly. And part of this was I, at my job, um, my first workplace, I had a lot of um, bad experiences with my supervision. I mean, my first five years were fine, but then you, everybody comes to a point in time where they, they just run into you know, difficult personalities. And it, at that time, it, 2014, I believe, I was probably making more money than my boss and my boss's boss at the end of the day. I always get these pop-ups on my LinkedIn profiles. Like, you know, we found jobs. You might be interested. Uh, I'm not looking for another job these days. So surviving the W2 world, I've got five tips for you folks. Uh, number one, don't take promotions unless you have to. You know, like, for example, you know, there's a, there's a promotion available and somebody you, who's going to get it, you don't want to work for. Maybe you should just take it just you don't have to work for a difficult person or an incapable person. Um, but, you know, again, these are just some of my personal tips. Uh, number two, swallow your pride. And this is something that I kind of learned, like I said, you know, working for two people who were thinking about their family more than their, their people. I like working for people with good character and integrity as opposed to just burning bridges to get to their next promotion or to get their bonus. Number three, avoid energy drainers. So this includes people you work for, people you work with. Your time and energy should be spent on investing and finding more deals in the future. Get the work done, go home. Uh, number four here, is the big question, do you talk about investing or not talk about investing to other people? I was more of a private person. I didn't, I didn't talk much about what I did in my first job. And partially because, you know, people found out I was buying rental properties. I mean, they probably would have used it against me in any kind of performance review. Some of you may or may, or may not be in those kinds of situations, but that's what I was in. That was a big thing for me. Um, to kind of keep it to myself at that first job. Once I started to change job, I used to kind of, you know, you talk a little bit what you do and you kind of see that a lot of people do have rental properties and, you know, be open to possibly investing with you or maybe you can team up. So my story there, you know, one time at work, I actually dropped my investor card and now my, my current partner that we've picked up a, you know, he was kind of the, really the guy who pushed me into the multifamily stuff um, because he was going to these boot camps, flying, flying to these places. He picked up the card and he, he texted me and he's like, hey, I didn't know you're a real estate investor. We should talk about this. So you never know who you're going to meet. You never know who's in the next cubicle. But, you know, the good comes with the bad. You never know if they're, they're the person who's going to be very um, scarcity minded. And, you know, sometimes you have that crabs in the bucket 
um, behavior at work where the other workers are just thinking, well, we're all here making the same salary. Nobody's going to, should be getting ahead. You know, we're all here to spend the eight hours um, and we should be working, which, um, you know, I believe, you know, you need to, you need to do the job they pay you, but you know, if you're a professional, you get the job done satisfactory and, and then, you know, that's, that's what you're paid for. No more, no less. So as I move along here, you know, year eight, it kind of brings us up to kind of sort of present day, 2018 and beyond. In 2017, like I said, I moved back to Hawaii. I invested another $30,000 into my education. So I've kind of almost spent over a hundred grand just on like conferences, masterminds and traveling and checking up properties, going on trips. Um, I partnered with my investors uh, in the Hui Do Pipeline Club and you guys can join that uh, there below, simplepassivecastle.com backslash club. The URL on the bottom is fudged. I'm a terrible speller. I need to improve on that, but hey, I'm an engineer and that's not what we do very well. We're good at numbers. Uh, we've acquired over $255 million in real estate and raised over $13 million within my group. It's a picture of us at our last mastermind in Sonoma. Uh, there's my buddy, Patrick. He's the guy I actually picked up my uh, investor card at the door. Luckily, it was him and not the boss. Together, the, the synergy there, we kind of traveled to a lot of these conferences and masterminds together, and we co-own MFP Investments, and we picked up 2,100 total units these last few years. My financial brain was kind of like, it, it was all on this financial independence and I think at the age of 27, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And I was able to kind of predict in the future that's very near future, I was going to be financial free and I could just go to the beach and just hang out and drink pina coladas all day long. But then I started to realize what kind of a lame existence that was. So I started to make this podcast in 2016, uh, mostly as a way to... Um, communicate what I was doing with my friends because a lot of them were like, oh, you're buying these properties in Birmingham. Do you even go and look at them? And, you know, I would answer the same questions over and over again. And, you know, it's, it's real estate. So most people will never ever do anything because there's money involved and it's getting out of your comfort, yada, yada. So I made this podcast, put it on iTunes, Google Play, and you guys can check that out. Um, started a YouTube channel, even did a charity where we raised money for cancer. And then at that point, it, this whole thing started to blow up on me, which was unexpected. I got all this like cool emails and it just never happened to me before where people would send me this stuff. Um, you guys can check out simplepassivecastle.com backslash testimonials. I mean, some of this stuff is kind of neat. Like can't make this stuff up. And at that same time, 2016, I went to a Tony Robbins uh, UPW Unleash the Power Within seminar. And I'm actually going to that again coming March in Los Angeles. And if you guys want to come along, uh, simplepassivecastle.com backslash mastermind Tony is the URL. And you, can, you guys can join us. We've already got about 20, 30 people coming with us. Um, but at that, at that seminar, it's a four-day seminar. He kind of goes over the six human needs. And one of those is a contribution back to others. And that's kind of on the higher end of, you know, if you think of mass, 
uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, once you've got cash flow, you've got pretty much all the, the necessities, you're living in Hawaii, life's good, good people around you, you want to find a way to give back to others. And for me, doing the podcasts, um, just helping people get started was kind of my way of contributing back to the world. And as things were growing, you know, I kept on seeing this, this uh, financial struggles that a lot of people have in Hawaii and in Seattle where I was, you know, people, they spend all this time and energy to get this house with this big yard, which happens to be the only place they can afford is like two hours away from where they work. So they're driving around, commuting all day long. Everyone's all stressed out. Everyone's unhappy. And why? A lot of it stems from money management issues. So kind of my big why is, you know, to help people, whether it's getting an out-of-state turnkey rental or step into the big syndication game, is to get them financially free ultimately. Um, you know, and I, and I found out the problem to, to this was some people just would not take the first step on their own. My first half of my presentation so I do have uh, two questions that have come in. Uh, do you invest in secondary or tertiary markets? Secondary and tertiary. Uh, I think these days tertiary markets are really where you're finding the deals at just because even the secondary markets aren't really working these days. But I'll kind of go into that a little bit more in detail. I've got some cool charts and sure, sure. buff drawings that I think the engineers like. I like it. And here is, is why haven't you quit your job and moved into real estate full time? <laughs> because well i'm 33 years old i don't have kids yet and i know you got kids right dan like things yep, really i'm change. 35 you're only two years away yeah yeah i mean and, and i hear from everybody and that's kind of one of my big things i've gotten a lot of mentors that are kind of in the next stage of life 40s 50s 60s and it's giving me a lot of good insight um, people tell me to kind of run with the ball as, as hard as i can now um, but at some point, I believe that that recession is next one to three years away, and I want to be holding on to a good government job. And at some point, you know, th this this investing thing is a little bit uh, the stuff that I do is a little more active. I'm in general partnerships, but as a passive investor, you really should it really shouldn't be that hard. I mean, if you're spending more than a couple hours every day as a passive investor, you're doing it wrong. So it's not, that's not that passive anymore at that point. <laughs> right. Right. And like, for me, like, I actually like my job now. There's always three components I look at as a job. Like, you know, do you like who you work for? Do you like who you work with? And do you like what you're doing? I've never had the thing where I actually like what I do, like, like what I, you know, I'm actually doing as an engineer. But right now, I like who I work with and I like who I work for. So two out of the three is fine and it's, it, it, it works for me. Um, I like structure in the day. I've stayed home a few days to do investing stuff when things get busy. And I find that I get just as much done um, when I'm kind of at work. Uh, it's amazing what you can get, get done on your phone and if you implement systems. Uh, I like structure. If I stayed at home all day long and eat junk food, and it's kind of neat to go to work too. It has that feeling of like you stole something, right? Like you're there, you're picking up two paychecks. I mean, and plus, I don't know, maybe I'm just like, I just don't want to make my parents upset or something like that. They spent all this money on this college and I don't know. Maybe I just need an identity in life. I, <laughs> well, I have another question that came in here. <laughs> um, if you are dependent on the cash flow from apartments, 
When do you sell income assets and still preserve your cash flow, although you may get a good chunk at sale? I will say that my turnkeys is, is a good example of that, right? As, as I bought my turnkey rentals, they appreciated a little bit. And, you know, because a lot of these places I bought in Boring secondary markets back in 2000 and well, I bought the Seattle properties in 2009, 10, but then I bought these other ones in 13, 14. So at some point in the beginning, you're making a lot of money, your return on equity. And if you want to uh, take a look at the dive into the numbers, I think that you are a simple com backslash uh, ROI or returns. But initially you're making like 30% as, you know, in mortgage pay down, appreciation, tax benefits, all that stuff and appreciation. But as you get more and more equity, which is a good thing, your return on equity goes down. So this is kind of speaking to a lot of people who have a lot of equity in their primary residences or rentals. At some point, a sophisticated investor will re-leverage to get that return on equity back up. And then eventually the natural, you'll get more appreciation. It'll be more of this, this downward trend. And then you re-leverage. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, you manage these C curves. And it, at the end of the day, for engineering speak, it's all area under the curve. That's, that's you making money. So what I'm doing is I'm selling off the, my turnkey rentals and putting in larger multifamily or other syndications. So the next question is, it says here is, am I right that you are a so-called equity partner only raising the money, not finding deals, not managing property management company? That is correct. That is hard work. I did money? that. I did that. No, no, the, <laughs> all the, the boots on the ground, the ramrodding contractors, the flying to these places that take a broker out to lunch. Um, I did that for 18 months. I, you know, did all that. I really didn't get anywhere because living in Seattle, I just don't think you can live in Seattle, like, you know, not be in the state where these places are and be able to be successful in, in actually, you know, getting properties. It's very difficult. I mean, it's possible, but it's a very slim chance of happening. And I think that's where you need to partner with somebody who's boots on the ground doing this stuff. Uh, You're, you always got to figure out what your highest and best use is. What, um, do you invest in value-add or stabilized properties? I think everybody throws around the term value-add all over the place. I invest in stabilized properties with about two to $8,000 of rehab per unit. So, you know, you guys tell me what that is. I don't, I don't like that term value-add because, you know, I've, li- I've watched like dozens and dozens and dozens of these presentations. And when I hear that, I'm already skeptic already. But tell me what the rehab budget is per unit. And that's what I go off of. That's a good point. That's a good point. Where are you buying the multifamily properties? And are you flying out to look at each one of these deals? Uh, most of them is in the South, Southeast, right? Because that's where like the, the market drivers for employment and growth are down there. I'm not saying that you can't find a value add deal in the primary market, but I think you're just competing with too many unsophisticated with money in a primary market and am I going to fly to these places? Well, eventually I am, but I think that's why you work. You, you kind of focus on the people portion first. And what's nice about when I started with this, you know, when I was sitting in conferences, I would meet up with peers at that time and you start to trust people as you start to climb the ladder of success together. 
And that point you start to trust people and then you're also doing the thing alongside with them. So you can talk in terms of data points and like, you know, maybe you both visited a property in Dallas in 2015 and then a deal comes up in 2017 and now you're able to say, well, hey, remember that was time we went to Dallas and we, you know, we ate at this place or in the next apartment we went and visit. It's kind of like that. It's got that kind of feel. And of course you got to go fact check them at the end, right? Once you, once you got the property or at some point in the due diligence, you go fly there yourself. The limit partner uh, tips here. So, so for those of you who just woke up, what is a syndication? Well, in my, I like to use the, the plane analogy where the cockpit has the general partners and the cockpit of the general partners could be one person, could be two people, could be, I've seen as much as like eight or 10 people. Uh, a lot of dead weight in that eight to 10 people cockpit, but essentially, you know, there's somebody who finds a deal, somebody who brings all the investors along, somebody who does the boots on the ground, some, somebody who signs on the loan with their balance sheet or their user net worth and liquidity to help qualify for the loan. So there's a lot of different roles here. Um, me as a equity raiser, I've been luckily I've been lucky to sit on that jump seat. You can kind of see in a picture there. I don't know if you can see my mouse, but there it is. But it's been a really cool place for me to sit and get a behind the curtain view of what's happening. Um, initially, I would just sit there and you know help out with the admin stuff and the rest, investor relations stuff. But now being in like all these deals, it's been really cool to kind of see what actually happens through those windshields and what actually gets communicated back in coach where all the limited partners are sitting. Uh, so that's essentially the, the makeup of a syndication. And I think a lot of people are always having to ask this question, do I be a GP or an LP? Here's my personal two-part test and you need to ask yourself, number one, are you good at being a landlord, which includes managing tenants, contractors, deal analysis, deal hunting, deal brokering. Um, and this is where I was, I was talking earlier about you know, I just didn't like to take brokers out to lunch and call them up on the phone. I mean, for me, that was a real pain in the butt to do. Um, I, and that, but I think that's what you have to do to be top of mind with the brokers. You got to take them out to uh, Dallas Mavericks game. And for me, me sitting in Seattle, that just was impossible. Well, it wasn't that impossible. You can run through walls, I guess, but it was just unlikely for me to do that all the way out there, nor did I even like it. And that's the important thing here. That brings up number two, do you enjoy doing any of this? Um, I, you know, like I said, I'm a project manager for construction projects and, you know, being a landlord has like managing contractors and I'm really good at it. I know all the, the way that these contractors play the game, you know, that's why there's con in them because they're all con men. So you have to police these people and I do it for a living, but I don't like doing it. Again, I don't know why I've been working anymore, but <laughs> you know, I don't like doing that. And you always have to ask yourself, what is your goal? What are you trying to do here? What kind of life are you trying to make? I think if your goal is to be like, you know, I'm trying to pick up a thousand units or this much of cash flow, I think that's a horrible goal. You need to look beyond that and try and do a more of a lifestyle uh, design goal. And if you said both to yes of them, yes to these questions, well then congratulations. You get to be a class C and be multifamily investor and deal with all this stuff. This is that big guidance I gave earlier in the talk. 
to uh, professional W two employees, and this is a small expert of this of that quote. And it says, if you're already saving at that you know thirty thousand dollars or higher level, you're likely to be financially free in four to seven years. So I emphasize begin with the end in mind and take more of a passive approach. And I emphasize again, begin with the end in mind. Um, check out that full article, simplepassivecashflow.com backslash syndication. Um, and, you know, we just did in my group a goals seminar that you guys can listen to and kind of follow along and brainstorm your own goals there at simplepassivecashflow.com 2019-launch. Um, but here's the ele- evolution of what I did and what I kind of teach my folks, you know, simple passive cash flow 0.0 is get out there, go work your butt off for a few years to save money, to go get some single family homes or some multifamily. And then simple passive cash flow 2.0 where kind of where I'm at these days is transitioning to more of a passive investor in syndications. But I'm not here yet, but simple passive cash flow 3.0 is finding your passion, creating your lifestyle the way you want. And uh, I don't know if you like golf, but I think golf is not really that great of a retirement. Um, If you think, yeah, if you think what you're going to do once you hit your your cash flow number is go golf and do whatever like that, I think you need to find something that contributes back to people and something bigger than yourself. But hey, who am I to say? Uh, something interesting to know of all my investors, it's there's the big age gap between like the age of 30 and 42. You know, when kids come in the picture, there's like a dozen years where like nothing gets done. So my investors are either younger than 30 or, or older than 42. And it's, it's very rare that... E- that they're between that age. Um, and that's kind of where I am personally, like I'm before the kids come in the picture. So I'm trying to take this thing as hard and as, as high as I can get it now, because I know for the next decade, I probably will do nothing. And that's, but hopefully I've, I've kind of set it up where doing nothing is the exact thing I need to be doing. And then for those of you who have kids, don't be discouraged, but somewhere between the ages of 10 to 15, your kids will likely not like you anymore and you're going to need some hobbies. So that's where this real estate investing comes in. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's kind of like hunting in a way. I mean, you're looking for treasure with these deals. I want to show you guys flow charts and here's the flow charts. Um, this is what, the way I advise high level, what people should do. And if you look at the, in the middle, don't, don't pay much attention to the stuff on the outside, but the middle is the first is the first question is like, how much time to devote to real estate investing? And this determines if, you know, your energy levels, if you've got a job. And then the next thing is like, you know, what's your annual household salary? If you're, if you're making more than like 120 grand a year, you probably should be more of a passive investor. But if you don't have anything else to do, or you're, you're barely making 50 grand a year, then yeah, you should probably be an investor. And this is where, you know, most of the people that work with me are high paid professionals. And it's always funny because like, you know, you read all these blogs about people leaving their job and quitting their job and replacing their income. And for me, I don't know how that's possible, right? Like, where am I going to go and collect like, you know, a hundred thousand dollar paycheck and, you know, 
barely do anything because I'm pretty good at it and I've created systems to do my work for me. To answer your earlier question, I think my job is sort of passive. I mean, that's why I guess that's why you go get a degree and you spend all that time, but it's a very poor return on investment at the end of the day. There's an active side of this. There's a passive side of this. You need to figure out which side of the spectrum you're on. And you need to ask the questions, you know, active side is more the general partner side. What is your highest and best use? And these are some of the questions you need to ask yourself. As a passive investor, you know, if, you, if you've got money, you, you're probably better off there if you have management skills from work. Your double two hourly rate is greater than 80 bucks an hour. Um, one or your network consists of high net worth folks that you can um, collaborate with and you know go into deals together and um, you know also have other people to kind of be your spies out there which deals are good I, I'm a fan of Gary Vaynerchuk and he's one of his tenants that he talks about a lot are self-awareness and when you know this everything sort of changes I talk to a lot of people on the phone. I, I give away like free investor calls, strategy calls. Um, I've probably done over a thousand of these over the past couple of years. And it's always funny to talk to somebody who is kind of that, that cat kitten there, cute little kitten there. And he thinks that they're a big lion. And I don't know, me the, as the science guy, I always sort of like check up on these kind of kittens and they never go anywhere. They just bomb out because they're not self-aware. They never really end up to where they want to go because they don't have the, the necessary needs. They're, they're not fitting themselves into the right place. And, you know, the four big things that you need to think about, the four biggest resources out there, and they fall in these categories, time, money, knowledge, and network. You need to figure out what you're good at and what you're bad at. You're not, if you're good at, all we need to check yourself son because you're probably not good at any why don't i quit my job or why did i go to be more of a a passive investor why don't i you know dig for deals and fly out to these places to go look at properties to go purchase Um, why am i more on the passive route and i started to do do all that for about 18 months and i analyzed like 100 200 properties i got really good at analyzing deals but my head really hurt because I kept banging my head against the wall in 2016, 17, analyzing these horrible deals that didn't even make any sense. And then we go into best and final with some of the, our peers and we just get bombed out at that table. And I don't know how those deals are, are doing these days, but this is my real spreadsheet that I would keep to myself. And this is, might be my little tracker. Um, so I've got the year here. The, what my ultimate goal was. And, you know, this, this always changes, right? Uh, a $10,000 passive income a month was sort of my goal and still is. I mean, that's, that's a good amount. And then, you know, this is back in like 2016 is when I did this last one. I don't really keep track of this anymore. My goal. So basically what I did here was I kind of tracked my age and how many units I had and passive cash flow, And I kind of projected when I would be at my goal. And I realized that I had enough net worth and my, my 11 single family homes and picking up a, f- a few syndications was putting me definitely on the flight path to be uh, where my goals were. So at that 
at that point, I was like, I had my realization of like, I don't need to be busting my butt and doing all this stuff. I can just be a passive and I'll get to my goals where I want to be. And luckily I started early and I think that's why I was able to project to be in a really good place on this chart, like at, in my forties. And then you, you asked yourself the question, you know, that is that, is that work for me or do I need to accelerate it even more? And when you accelerate things, you take on more risk, right? Which a lot of people don't realize. And I was comfortable with getting to my goal, you know, at this point in my life. I mean, life is, life is about sort of enjoying the journey. Uh, again, as I said before, if your goal is to own a thousand units or whatever, that's a bad goal because picking a number out of the sky, you need to figure out what kind of a lifestyle you want to have and define the rules of the game. And that's, that's a key thing. If you don't have the rules of the game defined, you'll never win the game. It'll just be a continual, just pick up units, pick up properties, rinse, wash, repeat, do it over and over again, and you'll never be happy. Um, I, I use this analogy of the, the train station or the, the buses or trains. You know, nobody ever really stays to the end of the line of the train or the bus. Only the people who do are kind of the weirdos who are kind of just drifting around in life. Don't be that person. Here's, here's kind of the meat and potatoes of my presentation here. I uh, wanted to give you, make sure you guys get a lot of value. 10 tips to be a limited partner. We'll kind of roll these through these one by one. I'm not going to really go into like analysis of properties. I do think every limited partner needs to understand this simple analyzer. I think this is like a dozen lines. Um, if you guys want this, you guys can um, email me. It's in my share drive. If you want to get access to that, at least understand how these numbers work, you know, NOI cap rates. It's a, it's a good starting point. I mean, of course, you know, you, you want to graduate towards that full analyzer so you can analyze each and every um, input. But the, the, this is a start, right? So the first thing is where the resources to collect the rent projections and how to use it. And the rent projections is an input on these larger spreadsheets that I think is probably one of the most influence on the, on the outcome of the, the performance of the, of the property on paper. One of the sources I like to use is Yardi. Uh, the other one I think is ALN or AOA. Um, but there's these big data houses that like to keep this stuff. I don't know why they're keeping this stuff. Maybe like the apartment ecosystem is kind of paying for the data or something like that or keeping them. Um, so when you look at the data, you always got to kind of look at it in a septic point of view of like, you know, is this really true? But at least you know relative, you can compare different markets. And each spreadsheet has this component where you're trying to apply a rent escalator to each year. So here, Yari is saying, you know, on the national scale, two and a half percent is what it should be for 2018. They're predicting 2.9% for 2019. But two red flags should go off. Number one, it's not a national market. You should be really looking, digging into the individual markets. And how are they getting these numbers? Because all these numbers are all wrong right here. So I wouldn't be using these numbers in my spreadsheet. I'd be using anywhere from like one to two and a half percent for most markets as a rent escalator every year. Uh, here's another good example of that. I think this is Yardi too. 
I looked, I looked up this one up last week and they're showing Dallas is 4.3%. I'm like, whoa, no way. But then I think par- partially what's throwing this number off is that they're including the class A stuff. And again, I, I look at mostly class B and C. So I think that's why it's a little higher, but I still went, you know, for a class C multifamily in Dallas, I think you're lucky if you're even getting 2.5% these days. I mean, I've read articles of like how Fort Worth is outperforming Dallas right now. I mean, Dallas is probably was the hottest market and there's still a lot of drivers for people moving in, but you know, from 2012 to 2015, you could have, you didn't have to do very much in terms of rehabbing and to get the, the, the bumps and rents. I mean, it was mostly market appreciation, which is, which is awesome. Right. And that's, I guess that's why it's important to pick a right market. So you get, you you can get lucky like that. Another thing here is like, here's the occupancy, which is sort of like the rent escalator. You just want to check that they're using the right one. Uh, And here's how Yardi is sort of describing the national occupancy. Again, you know, you don't want to be looking at national statistics, but I just brought this up here just to discuss it. Um, you know, and know the differences between, they call it lifestyle and renter by necessity. Uh, I like that net renter by necessity. These are basically class B and C. These are people who can't own a house. Lifestyle is more the, the luxury class A developments. And, you know, renter by necessity is usually going to be um, higher occupancy than um, the, the lifestyle component. I would say that this is pretty accurate i mean this is occupancy but you always got to keep in mind that you're really tracking economic occupancy at the end of the day and if you guys don't know what economic um, occupancy is like let's just say apartment is 100 percent occupied woohoo right i think every broker tells you that but then you come to find out like 20 percent are deadbeats not paying well then then it would be 80 percent economic occupancy so you always have to be, as a limited partner, you, it's a kind of mouse game too with the syndicator because they're always going to tell you, you know, one or the other and either try and manipulate the other, the economic vacancy if they give you the occupancy or vice versa. You know, they, they might even say, oh, it's, it's, you know, we were really conservative. We're going to do 90% occupancy, but they only put 1% for economic vacancy when they really should be using three or four. I think a lot of deals kind of use the same format for the P&Ls projections. The, this is a performa. So again, you know, we all know about performas, which means toilet paper in French. This is what I was talking about, the gross on the income. You know, you want to kind of calculate this on your own. What are the increases every year? And that's the escalator, when I'm, what we were just talking about on the rents. How to calculate your NOI and pick a cap rate. So Here's kind of a refresher for those. The nice thing about multifamily and commercial properties, it's based off NOI, not comparable sales, which can be skewed by a high one or low one. Uh, NOI is basically how the property performs uh, in terms of number. How good is it making money as a business? And, and here is the, uh, that famous formula. I love formulas where you take the NOI divided by the cap rate, and that's your magic number on how much the property is supposedly valued. So the NOI is going to kind of stay what it's at, 
you know, you have control over that, obviously, but the cap rate is another outside variable. It has a direct impact on the property value. So if you want to show a higher property value, yeah, just use a lower cap rate. I'm not going to go over this because I'm sure you guys have talked about this in length, how the NOI, um, you know, bumping in rents affects the total value and how you can cre- create value overnight. Woo, multifamily. Uh, but this is really important because in the analysis spreadsheet, there's one cell called the reversion cap rate or the exit cap rate. And when you're underwriting properties, you don't know what that future cap rate you're, you're going to sell it at. And, it, and because you don't know, and it's a shot in the dark, what you're trying to do is you're trying to be conservative and a good rule of thumb to use is use 1% higher on the reversion cap rate than the prevailing cap rate for the asset class to ensure conservative underwriting. And it's a little counterintuitive, right? Like you're going to go bump the cap rate, the reversion cap rate up to be more conservative. But trust me, um, play around with that other formula and you'll see how the numbers work and it, you'll get it. Uh, the cap rate going up means people are paying more for less NOI. And that's kind of where we are now. Um, people are paying less and less cap rate, um, um, paying, paying more for less cap, uh, more NOI today. So if the market gets stronger, you know, your 6.5 cap today may trade for a 6.25 cap in the future. Uh, obviously, we want to assume that it's going to go higher to be conservative. So here's an example. If you're doing 6.25 today, that's your prevailing cap rate for like a class C. I don't know. I don't want to say one. Uh, we'll, we'll call it, uh, I don't know, we'll call it Timbuktu or whatever. In Timbuktu, class C is 6.25. You apply the rule, you want to use a 7.25. And, and if I use that plus 1% on the top line there, you'll get like 100% return in five years. After you put in all these other inputs, you put in all the rental tables and everything. But now let's just say you want to sharpen the pencil a little bit as a syndicator and you want to show a higher returns for paper because maybe it wasn't 100% return in five years. Maybe your deal sucks and it's really like 80% return in five years. Well, if you're, if you're to show like a 0.75% uh, cap rate reversion plus now you can pump it to 114% return in five years. And that's what I'm kind of seeing in a lot of deals these days, you know, start sh- sharpening the pencil and putting the reversion cap rate at less and less and less. And in this little sensitivity analysis here, you see how it just skewed all the returns. I mean, I'm a syndicator. I do this all the time. I should know. <laughs> And, you know, the, the reversion cap rate is probably with, the, with like I said, with the rent, annual rent increases, those are probably the two biggest levers uh, you can pull to play around with the numbers. And here you can, there's a sensitivity table and see how it really affects sales prices and, and whatnot. Typical terms on lending today, I'm seeing 455 percent uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, community banks, insurance companies are, are lending on these things. Uh, you want to look for 25 to 30 year amortization and 12 up to 12 year terms. And that that's actually really important. The eight to 12 year term on, on these notes 
that's probably much more important than the interest rate or the amortization for me. Because the way I see that is, you know, here's a market cycle right here. I'm thinking we're somewhere around this expansion phase right before the crest. And that eight-year note or 12-year note should supposedly be long enough to span this market cycle here to get you to the other side. Obviously, like a three-year note will put you right, likely put you right in the trough and you've got to sell in the worst part of the market. So that's what you, you know, that term is doing. Uh, today, you're even seeing like interest only, like up to seven years, I heard. I mean, that's crazy. And that can be very misleading because it sounds really cool, right? Well, they got seven years, interest only, I.O. Woo! But then that really skews your IR because it's not the property making money. It's the fact that you just got interest only. You're going to pay that at some point. And um, just something to be aware of. Uh, number five here, recourse versus non-recourse debt. This is in red because this is one of the biggest things I look at. I like to go into non-recourse debt because you don't have to uh, pay it back if there's trouble. Uh, recourse debt is, is sort of the traditional financing that we all have in our primary residences or rentals. If you, if you fall behind, you always got to pay it back. That's, uh, that's how the world works. But the non-recourse debt, if you fall into these, these four major things, you know, it's stabilized, it's a, it's a larger loan. Somebody on the general partnership team has their FENI card and the debt service coverage ratio follows in line. I don't know if it's 1.25 or 1.2. Um, I'm not, don't really pay much attention to that, but uh, whatever it is these days, that those are the big things that qualifies for. And this is a, a big thing that, you know, if, those of you looking to pick up smaller multifamilies, like in the 30 to 50 unit size, you know, as you go to the smaller deals, it's a higher interest rate because the banks know that that's a lot more riskier. They have a lot more amateurs in that sector. As a limited partner, you want to be looking that they're doing a cost segregation. And, um, you know, this is your K1, which I like is a lot easier than me keeping up all my P&Ls and my schedule E's for my single family homes. As we know, properties go up in value, but on paper, we get a flow down and depreciation on your personal W-2 taxes. And I did a book club on this. We wrapped up the fourth session yesterday. If you guys want to check out those four webinars, you can go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash tax. But I was kind of talking about like in 2017, I was able to take $25,000 from my passive losses on my personal side because... I don't make too much money. I only made like $90,000 in my W-2 job. So I was, I didn't get into that phase out. Cause I think if you get above $150,000 of income, you've, you're not allowed to carry any passive losses to offset it. So I think I paid like 14 grand of total taxes or like, like, which is unheard of, right? Like, I mean, I, I paid less taxes than a school teacher in 2017. It's kind of crazy. On these bigger deals, what they do is they, they do this cost segregation. You can read the full article there. But here's a, a sheet that we got back from one of our cost segregation folks on a quote. Uh, this is on a, I think it was a $2 million asset. You know, here was what we would have depreciated if we did it every year. And what this other category, bonus depreciation after, is what we were able to take in year one. And here is that property here, you know, that equates to $130,000 of additional savings 
just right off the bat. And the cost segregation fee on that one was 6,000 bucks, which is like a no brainer, right? You pay the six grand to get that cost savings of $130,000. Uh, but on a smaller property, this doesn't make sense, right? And this is where syndications and multifamily blow single family homes out of the water because you can do stuff like this. There's one of my K1s uh, in a deal where I went into late last year, last last year. We didn't make any money, but we had depreciation there, you know, a couple grand. Tip number seven here, you need to understand what it, what the type of deal you're working in. Here are the different asset classes, class A, B, and C, and F. Um, class A are probably your, your newer builds. Class B, I would say today's are your, like your 1980s, 1990s builds. Class C's are like 1960s, 1970s. Um, you know, years, how old the property is, is kind of the big indicator of this. I like to stay in assets like in this area where, where you can get the highest yields and try and reposition it to get it a little higher to maybe like a B minus or a B. Again, like I said, it's a rehab per unit is what I look at. Two to $8,000 will usually get that nice little bump. Um, you know, and obviously you don't want to overbuild. Interesting nuance, like Huntsville, for example, we picked up three properties there. Huntsville has a lot of techie people, engineers, that follow the uh, simple passivecastle.com cheapo lifestyle. So they're not willing to pay extra money for, you know, a nicer place, which is kind of an interesting nuance. Whereas apparently Dallas people are like $30,000 millionaires out there that they, that they're willing to do that. You know, the next thing to always keep in mind is like, what kind of a location is this property in? It could be a junk seat class property, but what location is it at? You know, this is not really drawn to scale, but I like to try and find obviously better locations because you can't really do anything about the neighborhood, but you can do something about the class of the building. Uh, num tip number eight here is, is that hierarchy question, like going from single family homes to syndications. And then we kind of talked about this earlier, but here are some additional thoughts. And, you know, when as a GP, do you go, or when is the LP, do you go to the GP? Or when do you go from single family homes to syndications? People who, I, I don't think you can really dive right into kind of going to the bigger stuff right away. I think you got to kind of dabble, get your experience. That's just where I, I am personally, in my opinion. Um, but the full article there is simplepassivecashflow.com backslash syndication. If you uh, want to take a read of that. Nine mistakes I see unsophisticated investors take a look at. First, they focus on the general partner LP split. I mean, if, it, if a deal is like 70-30 and then they're like, oh, this one's an 80-20, I'm going to go after the 80-20. That is like not a good way of investing, folks. Like, here's how the deal works. Like syndicators, they get a deal. They, they fix the, the limited partner's um, profits to maybe about 80 to 100% return in five years, and they see how much the general partners can take. That's how it's done. So in my opinion, I'd rather be in a 50-50 deal with a, a lot of meat on the bone that to pay the general partners that much because there's a lot more uh, safety there than like a 90-10 split deal. Investors, they also look at the preferred rate of return, which is the, which is the wrong way of looking at it because the general partners are, are the smartest guys in the room 
and they they're cooking the numbers so that yeah they're going to give you a pref on the front end but they're taking it on the back end if the deal gets taken um or gets hits a home run that they're taking a larger majority of that than they would have if there was no pref of course the cap rate gate is what i call it. and that was the whole discussion earlier about the cap, the reversion cap rate you should be checking your comps for occupancy and economic vacancy uh, here's a little thing that we got from CoStar to kind of verify rents, but you need to be walking these properties, being like a tenant, like a mystery shopper in a way. People don't dig into the performa uh, and, and they invest with people they don't know, like, or trust. And that's where people, you know, you're asking me about my mistake. I lost 40 grand because I worked with a shyster. And you can read more about that at .com backslash fail there. But here's what I, more I'm at today, you know, more holistic wealth building. And when you're investing in syndication, there's four ways you're, you're trying to diversify in this stuff. Um, different operators. I, I only try and work with an operator on at least, at most a few deals at this point. I don't want to, at some point, I feel like an operator is going to choose their family over the deal. Maybe I just have, I don't trust people, but that's just the way that I think. And that's how I operate. Uh, different asset classes, different geographical markets, different business plans. Some are buy and holds, some are five-year pump and dumps. And I also see most investors investing no more than 5% of their net worth into any one deal. Holistic wealth building continue, you know, it's maybe not about getting 15 to 25% a year in multifamily. It's about re-leveraging that lazy equity you have. Maybe it's in a HELOC, implementing the infinite banking or uh, managing their liquidity can be more about that at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash OFUN. Getting your retirement funds back into the game. That was what Damon was talking about there with his QRP. And asset protection and simplifying taxes or optimizing taxes is something I've been focusing on. So here's what I'm investing in these days. Forced appreciation in case there's a catastrophic um, thing in the economy. And cash flow day one, not in performa. Here's what I think is going to happen when the uh, economy goes bad. And here are the greenhouses and the red apartments that we're looking at. These are the type of investor or type of tenants that live in each property. And as we know, most of the population lives in the C class, D class homes. The baby boomers will move here. The Gen X's will move there. The Gen Y's will move here. The millennials will live there. There's kind of that upward trend. But as soon as the recession hits, this bell curve slips backwards and everybody falls back. And this is why I like class C, multifamily, and B. And I try and stay away from the A class, nicer stuff. Here's a little joke. Millennials will move back in their home, with the parents' home in the class C's. You know, everybody knows about these market cycles. And this is what I'm kind of paying attention to. In 2008 was our last top or bottom. It's been 11 years so far, and we're due for another correction, which ha supposedly happens every 8 to 12 years. Uh, the 10 and the 2 year just, in just inverted a few weeks ago, and that's a big indicator. And I've looked at all these ways to invest. I put it on graphs, and this, you guys want to take a picture. This is a cool one. But every way you can sort of invest, and I put it on there. And today we're talking about the non-recourse syndications and the high-value add syndication or multifamily and i think it's over there and i still think that there are good places to invest as we come to a more mature um, market cycle i always talk about this one you know this is the way i basically built my portfolios you know you pick up turnkey rentals then you get into the syndication now you start to play around with like a little bit 
different stuff, more home run deals, like higher risk, high return, hotel syndications, assisted living. Uh, you, you start to build your liquidity fund. And, you know, that's kind of how I think you should build your portfolio. Uh, I'm very against Wall Street. I feel like it's very corrupt there. And I, I like to help middle class people find safer, more profitable investments. I'm trying to create like a hui or a community of successful investors who kind of work together and collaborate. My website, simplepassivecashflow.com for working professionals. And, um, you know, here's my email contact and some goodies for you. You guys can join the, any local social club I have subscribe to my podcast interview for access to my 360 member private Facebook group. And the new mastermind is being launched here soon, probably next month. You can check out that at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey. It'll be a 27 week curated course. You'll have motivated peers. If you're coming out to Hawaii, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash retreat. I thought of them all. I've got my little cheat sheet of all the good places to eat and stuff to go visit on Oahu and some of the neighbor islands. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself, because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.